Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 241. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Still going strong. 241. <laughs> <laughs> Dickens that come from. Tell you what's coming up in today's show. We have Main Fiction is by KD Wentworth. Then we have Looking Back at Genre History, Amy H. Sturgis. But before all that, we have Skeets, fantastic, covering the sofa. This month it is Joe Roberts. Greetings, Starship Sofa listeners, and welcome once again to another installment of Covering the Sofa. I'm your host, Skeet Sienski. This is the month of June 2012 we have the privilege of featuring an impressive piece of art entitled Pest Control by the amazing Joe Roberts. Like so many of our guest artists, Joe admits he's really not one for biographies and prefers to let the work do the talking. He says, quote, I'm a digital artist based in London, in the UK, specializing in book covers and video game art, which I've been doing professionally now for about 17 years. I'm very fortunate in that I get to do work on all the cool genre stuff that I'm really into, especially sci-fi and horror and a bit of fantasy. Right now, amongst other things, I'm working on another zombie apocalypse cover, a guide to Star Wars, and a book about Tolkien. While I occasionally like to dabble with 3D, my tools of the trade usually begin and end with Photoshop. I love the way it works, and have been using the software since its infancy. As this is a sci-fi podcast, I thought it might be worth mentioning that I'm a huge Doctor Who fan, and I've been for 30 years. So I was thrilled to get to do the cover for Mark Campbell's complete guide last year. Even though it wasn't an official BBC publication, it was one of my favorite projects to work on, and it's uh, great to have something out there in the Hooniverse with my name on it. Unquote. Well, this is a stunning piece of art Joe has let us feature here. With the title Pest Control in mind, I envisioned a tale of spider-like mechanoids gone amok in a future city where the only defense is the brave humans who are piloting their small attack ships, fighting these dangerous pests and keeping the city safe. But don't take my word for it. See for yourself and get a look at this month's cover. If you'd like to see more of Joe's work, you can find him at www.joeroberts.co.uk forward slash joe underscore roberts forward slash home dot html. On behalf of Tony and myself, I would like to thank Joe Roberts and hope that we see more of his work here on a future edition of Covering the Sofa. This is Skeet Sciensky signing off. Back to you, Tony. <laughs> There you go. Just get a look at Onzi. Get a look at that artwork as well. How cool is that? Joe, thank you so much. And Skeet, thank you, sir. There's links on to Joe's site. Do pop over there and go and have a look and say hello. So straight away is the main fiction, and it's by K.D. Wentworth. 
KD stands for Kathy Diane Wentworth. And this is the kind of really sad news. Unfortunately, Kathy died in April this year, 2012. And I've had this story for a while there. And it's been narrated, you know, and I was allowed to play it there. So I think just in a fitting tribute, it'd be lovely to play it. You know, I'll just give you a little background into Kathy Diane Wentworth. She is American science fiction author. She got a start winning the Writers of the Future contest in 1988 and then later on won the Field Publications Teachers and Writers Award in 1991. She served two terms as the secretary for the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America in the early 2000s and was a Nebula finalist. Like I say, unfortunately, Kathy died in April the 18th, 2012 from complications with pneumonia and cervical cancer. This story that we're about to play, Exit Strategy, was or came about from the magazine of fantasy and science fiction in March 2008. In the kind of science fiction terms, the first story was Daddy's Girl in 1989 and the very last one actually was published 2012, Alien Land. And again, that came out in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction in January, February edition. The story is narrated by Julie Davis. Now, long-time listeners would remember Julie's narrations, fine narrations as well, from way back when. Did a lovely David Brin story for us. Julie can sometimes be heard over there at SF Audio and has got the Happy Catholic site as well. So I'll put a link on the Julie site. I'll have to try and get some, you know, sneak some more stories off Julie because just what a lovely voice. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present. Exit Strategy by K.D. Wentworth. On Thursday, when the March wind was biting chill, Charlesy put on her best black lace leggings and her new hoodie, then popped down to the Second Life Temple to donate her body. Dead leaves skittered along the Camden sidewalk, and she kicked them out of the way. Her mood was positively foul. That afternoon, she'd gotten back her sociology paper, The Division of Labor, how women always get the shaft. At the top of the front page, Mr. Shapiro, her fifth-hour social teacher, had written, Dreary, polemic, and uninspired, C-minus-minus. She'd poured the best thirty minutes of her life into that paper. It was clear now that living was not for her. A church of second-life priest waited in the temple doorway as she trudged past the cut-back rose bushes dried-out plants and bare earth of the dormant memory gardens. Above the massive wooden doors, one leaves, one stays, had been etched into the gray stone in letters two inches deep. So, daughter, the middle-aged man said when she was close enough, why have you come to us today? He had massive football player shoulders and was dressed in the order's traditional navy blue trousers and shirt. His eyes conveyed the soulful gaze of a basset hound. "'I'm, like, tired of living,' she said, unwrapping a piece of tart tangerine gum. "'So, as your brochure says, I thought I'd give someone more optimistic a chance.' "'Admirable,' the man said. He folded his hands, which was harder than it should have been, because he had huge scarred knuckles that looked like he'd gone more than a few rounds in the fight ring in his day.' Is there a reason for offering yourself at this particular moment? Charlesy studied the red and blue thread friendship bracelets around her wrist. Amy and Madison had given them to her when they'd all still been speaking to one another. 
She twisted the thread until it broke and threw the bracelets on the ground. Everything sucks, she said. Trying to make friends and then keep them when they're all two-faced bitches trying to learn the most boring stuff in the universe and then cough it back up for tests just so that one day I can work for practically nothing at some boring job. I'm tired of curfews, rules, fads, boyfriends, parents, and especially my dad. Can you believe he even wants to tell me how to wear my freaking hair? You name it, I've had it. I see. His voice was a murmur so that she had to move closer. Why don't you come in and we'll discuss the matter? What's to discuss? Charlesy crossed her arms and chewed her gum as though it were her former best friend, Chrissy. And don't give me that counseling crap. I don't need anyone to tell me how to make up my own mind. What about parental permission? The priest said. His voice tried to hit a soothing note, but it had a gravelly quality. Must have taken a few punches to the throat during those fights. She jammed her hands in her hoodie pockets. We can't proceed without that, the priest said patiently. If her parents got wind of this, they would freak big time. They had even forbidden her to get her eyebrow pierced. Her dad, in particular, would never let her try anything cool. She practically had to get his permission to change the shade of her nail polish. I just turned 18, she said, which was almost true, sort of. She did have a fake ID for clubbing that could back her up. Then you are indeed a candidate, he said, standing aside so that she could enter the temple. My name is Sister Angela. Her jaw stopped in mid-chew. Sister, I was once fortunate enough to avail myself of the church's services, Sister Angela said. A smile lit up the rough-hewn face. The expression was very nearly sweet in a gruesome sort of way, kind of like being smiled upon by a slavering pit bull. They gave me a second chance at life. You're not going to give my body to some freaking guy, are you? Charlesy demanded as the two of them walked back through the echoing nave to Sister Angela's office. Votive candles in tiny green glass holders were burning in the dim side aisles, and the flames bent double as they passed. The air positively reeked of bayberry. The whole effect was so retro she couldn't believe it. That would just be too... gross. Why should it concern you? Sister Angela said since you wish to abandon it yourself. How come you didn't get a female body? Charlesy said. How come they stuck you with... She gestured at the ungainly male form. This. I had cystic fibrosis, Sister Angela said. I was dying from the moment I was born, so I was grateful for continuing life in whatever form it came. You should have gotten a refund, maybe even sued. Charlesy flounced through a door in the back of the church as directed, and then another to the left, finding herself in Sister Angela's poorly lit office. Books, mostly steamy historical romances, were piled on shelves, soap opera gossip magazines heaped in the corner next to a computer desk. The room smelled faintly of Chanel Number no. 5, and distant machinery vibrated beneath the floor. We don't charge for our services.
the sister said. We operate on donations. No one knows what form they will be given until they go through the process and then wake up on that blessed morning to take up their second life. She smiled broadly, revealing chipped teeth. We feel that it's best to let God choose for us. Well, God sure must have been pissed at you, Charlesy said. Sister Angela's nose looked as though it had been broken any number of times. Were you like a big-time sinner? I think you're getting off the point, Sister Angela said, taking the chair behind a battered desk. Her hands were again folded, but her battered male face looked like it would like to take a swing at Charlesy. Old habits probably died hard. You're certain you want to enroll in the donation guild? Guild? Charlesy said. I don't want to join anything. I just want to give my body away so I can be like, uh, at peace. In order to do that, you have to become an acolyte in the guild, Sister Angela said. She opened a drawer and pulled out a handful of paper forms. Just fill these out, then we'll go on from there. Geez, Charlesy told herself as she struggled with the application essay. This was worse than applying for college. All she wanted to do was off herself in a way that would make those conceited skanks back at school really jealous. None of them would ever have the nerve to do what she was doing, that was for sure. Reasons for wishing to discorporate? the form asked. Charlesy had never seen that word before, but obviously it meant die. Why couldn't they just come out and say so? Were they trying to confuse her? Everything sucks, she wrote laboriously, then added, and everyone, including the Church of Second Life, she thought rebelliously, but didn't write that. Hobbies, the form asked. She threw the pencil down and crossed her arms. Sister Angela looked up from her computer monitor. Having trouble? What does it matter if I have hobbies? Charlesy said. I'm trying to die here, not post a bio on MySpace or get a date for the prom. We find that the body retains muscle memory after the original personality is wiped, Sister Angela said. So it helps to have a file for the new owner. That way, he or she knows if they might become a watercolor painter or a seamstress or a dancer or an excellent horsewoman. Oh, Chagrined, Charlesy picked up the pencil again and went back to the form. After hobbies, she wrote, Tattoo artist, bungee jumping, and skydiving. She'd never done anything of the sort, but she didn't see how it would hurt her body to give those a try after she was gone. It might as well go out and live a little. She certainly never had. Thanks, Dad, for seeing to that. Allergies, the form asked. None, she wrote, though she was allergic to shellfish and strawberries. Let the next occupant find out the same way she had, by trial and error. No reason why they should have it any easier than a born person. Sexually active? Very, she wrote, though she hadn't actually gotten around to the deed yet. She'd always meant to, though. Intentions counted. Everyone knew that. Charlesy worked her way through the rest of the questions much faster thereafter. It was a lot easier, she found, if you just made the answers up, and by the end she was pretty much enjoying herself, which hadn't happened for a while.
Sister Angela collected the papers and squared up the edges by tapping them on her desk. Fine. The weathered male face beamed at her. I'll have these entered into the computer and we'll see you tomorrow. Same time. But, Charlesy said, her face heated. I was counting on biting the big one today. Oh, we never proceed that quickly, Sister Angela said, taking Charlesy by the elbow. The gift of a body to a dying person is sacred. We don't want anyone doing it on impulse. This is so totally screwed up, Charlesy muttered to herself as she drove her clunker tempo across town to another dreary pot roast dinner with the rents. A girl couldn't even off herself when she wanted, just as she thought everything in this so-called veil of tears really did suck. After dinner, the pot roast lay in her stomach like lead. She didn't do her homework. She didn't pick up her discarded clothes, put away her clean laundry, or make any attempt to straighten her room. No point in bothering with any of that stuff if you were planning on exiting forever tomorrow. Instead, she watched old movies on the television in her bedroom until what her mother called the wee hours. One, a black-and-white flick, The Big Store, starring three maniacs called the Marx Brothers, made her laugh until the tears rolled down her face. The next morning, she slept in and let school go on without her. That hoe Chrissy could lord it about the halls all she wanted with her posse, which admittedly contained every one of Charlesy's former friends. She just snuggled under the covers until mid-morning when hunger and nature's call finally drove her out. Mom and Dad always took her younger brothers to school on the way to work and left the house before she did, so they wouldn't have any idea that she'd stayed home. She stumbled into the gleaming stainless steel kitchen and reached for the slim fast bars in the pantry, but then realized if she were going to vacate this body, there was no reason to obsess about her weight anymore. So instead, she breakfasted on vanilla fudge ripple ice cream, two bowls full, in fact, then showered for twenty solid minutes, with no one about to yell at her for emptying the hot water tank. When it was time to go back to the temple, she dressed carefully in her favorite denim miniskort and a lacy teal tunic, the one her dad totally loathed, cut low to reveal assets which she probably didn't have. That would soon be someone else's problem she thought airily. She was moving to a higher plane where great boobs were no doubt issued as standard equipment. At the temple, Sister Angela's ugly mug was waiting with someone else, a fragile old woman with flyaway white hair haphazardly pinned up as though she employed a hyperactive two-year-old as a beautician. The order's navy blue pants and shirt hung on her like grocery bags. Charlesy, it's good to see you again, Sister Angela said. "'Geez, you don't have to sound so surprised,' Charlesy said, shivering in the spring air. She really should have worn her freaking jacket with a little mirror spangles, even if it didn't go with this outfit. "'I said I'd be here.' Seventy-five to ninety percent of all initial applicants never return,' the old woman said in a quavery voice. "'Most people are impulse applications who change their minds "'once they cool down and think the matter through.' "'Charlesy, this is Father Andrew,' Sister Angela said, "'our head priest.' "'No way!' Charlesy said, her head reeling. 
The two second lifers had persuaded her to come inside the temple to get out of the sharp wind. It often affects people like that, my dear, the old man slash woman said, patting her cheek with a withered hand. It's a perfectly normal reaction. Nothing to be ashamed of. Is this a perv hangout? Charlesy sank onto a polished wooden pew and breathed in the scent of lemon oil. You're going to hand my body over to some old fart? We prefer the term seasoned soul, Sister Angela said. And remember, God does the selecting. Otherwise, we as imperfect humans might be inclined to play favorites. It's a bit like buying a lottery ticket. Some are big winners. Others are just good for another ticket so you can play again. And some, frankly, are not much of a prize at all. "'Tis a glorious thing to lay down your life for another,' Father Andrew said in his piping old lady voice. "'Just as Christ laid down his to redeem us all.' "'Yeah, well, Christ didn't have to think about some old geezer parading around in his body after he bit the big one, wearing his favorite hoodie or stuffing his bra.' Charlesy, I'm sensing serious reticence here, Sister Angela said. This choice may not be for you. You think? Charlesy bolted onto her feet and gazed around the peaceful sanctuary. Somewhere in the background, machinery hummed. She could feel it vibrating up through the stone flag floor. I don't know. I was really planning on, like, you know, going. Father Andrew's eyes were as beady as a bird's. Why don't you participate in the donation guild for a few days? Maybe even a few weeks before you make up your mind. It could bring you a measure of peace either way. And because she couldn't think of any alternatives, she found herself saying yes. Charlesy went back to school the next day. Having already intercepted one call to her mother from the principal's office wanting to know if she was sick, she ignored Chrissy and Amy and Madison, who giggled and whispered and rolled their eyes as she walked by. They didn't matter. No one did. She had something else in her life now, something secret and important. None of those air brains could say that. And since she wasn't burdened with friends or a social life anymore, she found herself with a lot of time on her hands. When she wasn't working at the temple, she wound up doing some of her homework out of sheer, unadulterated boredom. It was strange, but the more of it she did, the easier it got. Sometimes now she actually understood what the teacher was saying in class, even in trig. It was a startling, rather heady feeling. She did meet new people at the Second Life Temple. Philip, who was 41 and miserable, having just lost his IT job, again, and Marcia in her 50s, who was going through her third divorce and had this teensy problem with alcohol. There were Sherry and Alex and Roger and Stacy and Reg, each with his or her problems, just some of the many miserable souls haunting the dim hallways of the temple complex. Many were eager to share their stories, but she shied away from getting close. There was no point, because, like her, they were all on their way out. Each day they met at the temple, then put on the navy blue robe of an acolyte, and took care of the housekeeping chores in order to free up the priests for more important work. As time went by, they began instruction on how to tend the vast network of computers 
in the underground complex beneath the temple itself. This was where personalities of the dying were downloaded into the servers, and where donated bodies had their suicidal personalities chemically wiped. There was some disagreement, she learned, as to whether consciousness was actually transferred or merely duplicated. That was obviously a big deal to the supplicants, though it really didn't figure into her end of the situation. Sometimes, Charlesy would get a glimpse of one of the dying when they applied for a new body. They came in droves, many more than the temple could serve. All of them met Sister Angela and Father Andrew, so Charlesy supposed they understood the risk they were taking in this grab-bag-style exchange. The acolytes were not permitted to mingle with supplicants, though. Sister Angela said the church didn't want to influence potential donors unduly. If you wanted to lay down your body, you should do it for the right reason. Unlike some of the antiquated religions taught, the Church of Second Life didn't consider it a sin if you didn't want to live in this world anymore. But on the other hand, it was selfish to throw away a perfectly healthy body when so many desperately ill people could put it to good use. It turned out that one of the acolytes, Philip, was quite good at hacking computer files, having acquired a lot of experience during what he termed his misspent youth. He'd already scanned the Second Life code and had a theory that the Church's prized random selection algorithm wasn't quite as random as it was supposed to be. The sexes got switched, he said, when matching new personalities to donated bodies rather more often than chance should indicate. One night, the acolytes all went out for pizza after their shifts, and Philip reported that he'd learned by reading supposedly secure files that Sister Angela's body had once been Bill the Bomber Atkins, a notorious prizefighter who'd killed three men in the ring. Father Andrew's bird-like form had been donated by Maria Selves, a famous anthropologist who had inadvertently wiped out an entire Amazonian culture by exposing them to the flu virus. Each had compelling reasons for wanting to leave the world behind. But it was getting harder each day for Charlesy to remember why she wanted to go. At home, her detachment led to quieter evenings and less arguing with her two younger brothers. To explain where she went after school each day, she told the rents, Charles and Anna, that she had a part-time job down at Burger King. That kept them off her back, and they seemed to think that she was finally becoming more responsible. <laughs> What a laugh. One day, though, about three weeks after Charlesy had enlisted in the donation guild, she had just ducked into the locker room to don her blue robe when her dad stuck his head through the door. Charlesy? He stepped inside, still wearing his suit and red-striped tie from work, looking around, dark hair must, obviously aghast. I thought you were up to something, but I was hoping it was only drugs. What are you doing in this place? I work here, she said, her heart hammering. These people are notorious nutcases, he said. Everyone knows that. Get your stuff. We're going home. I can't, she said, thrusting her arm into the blue robe's sleeve. I have to work my shift. They're counting on me. You don't have a shift, he said, crossing the room to take her by the arm. Not anymore. Is there a problem? Sister Angela's sturdy form appeared in the doorway. No, sister, Charlesy said, freeing her arm. He was just leaving. That's no sister, 
her dad said. Indeed she is, Charlesy sighed. Just go home, Dad. We can talk about this later. Her dad whirled upon Sister Angela, hands fisted. She's underage. I'll sue you people six ways from Sunday. Charlesy, Sister Angela said with a note of disapproval. I'm eighteen, almost, Charlesy said, her voice fading on the last word. I told you to get your stuff. Her dad said, "No," she said, surprising herself. With trembling fingers, she buttoned up her robe. "Like it's my life, and I can do what I want with it. And right now, what I want is to work my freaking shift." These people will kill you," he said. "They'll flush your personality out of your brain like yesterday's dead goldfish, then hand your body over to some stranger." "No, we won't," Sister Angela said. Not if she isn't of age. Her battered male face glanced at Charlesy. Her father loosened his tie as though he was ready to go ten rounds with Sister Angela. Well, she's not. The two men regarded one another. Her father had a temper, but he'd never been very physical. Charlesy bet Sister Angela could take him. Just because I'm not of age doesn't mean I can't volunteer for the donation guild, she said. I'm not breaking any rules by just working here, am I? No, Sister Angela said quietly. I am old enough to drop out of school, Charlesy said, facing her father, and I will unless you let me keep my job. No, you won't. Her father seized her arm and dragged her out the door. She gave up trying to get free and just rode in his gray van in thin-edged silence, huddled against the passenger door. There was peace at the temple. Weird as that sounded, she liked working there, sweeping and polishing, hanging out with the other volunteers, entering data into the servers. She had the lowest error rate of all the new acolytes. Father Andrews said so. That meant something. She'd never been best at anything before. It's a cult, Charlesy. Her mother said that night after her little brothers Eric and Tom had been sent to their rooms. There was an expose on entertainment tonight, just last week. In spite of what they claim, they don't save those sick people. The brain patterns are duplicated, not transferred. The original personality still dies. Besides, her father said, sweeping his arm around the living room, with its home theater sound system, mega high def TV, and the latest in computer gaming technology. Why on earth would you want to kill yourself? You have a loving home, a generous allowance, a bright future. He had a desperate gleam in his eye. What could be so wrong with your life that you'd want to abandon it to some stranger? We're signing you up for counseling, her mother said, and you will go. So, you want to kill yourself? The shrink leaned forward in his chair, looking expectant. His fingers played with a cigarette lighter, flipping the top up and down, up and down. Doctor Fusselman was ferret-faced and forty, all edges, with narrow dark eyes that followed her every move as though he were stalking her. His spacious blue-carpeted office had dumb fake trees scattered about it, like she was supposed to be fooled into thinking they were outdoors. He even played bird calls on a sound system hidden in the wall somewhere. Over by the window, fish swam in a huge tank, 
darting around submerged rocks over and over, looking trapped. The air reeked of carpet cleaner. She'd been coming here two days a week for three weeks, the financial equivalent of a Florida vacation for the entire family, her mother reminded her at every opportunity. I don't want to die, not anymore, Charlesy sighed, because he started every session with the same stupid question. She examined her tangerine-polished fingernails. Who was taking her shift down at the temple? Sister Angela had promised to teach her how to download a supplicant's personality, which would have been awesome. Now she'd never get to do it. Will you just give it a freaking rest? I can't help you if we don't get to the root of the problem, the shrink said. His bushy eyebrows quirked. His voice lowered. Let's dig a little deeper today. I know you're hiding something. Have you ever been abused? Ew! She sat up straight in her chair. Something drove you to that kind of desperation, the shrink said. Are you having an affair with one of your teachers? Or does someone come into your bedroom at night? His eyes narrowed even further, which she hadn't thought possible. Isn't your father... You are totally gross. She bolted to her feet, then tottered a bit on the spike heels she'd worn to cheer herself up. I can't do this anymore. Charlesy, sit down, he said, as though disciplining a wayward dachshund. She fled out his office door, past his goggle-eyed secretary, who looked a bit like a fish herself. There were even more fish in a tank in the waiting room, big splotchy ones with blubbery lips. This guy had a real thing for scales and fins, she thought as she snatched her jacket from the coat tree. He should get help. Outside, she pulled off her shoes and then ran for a block, dodging pedestrians on the sidewalk, old ladies and young mothers with strollers, startled sparrows feasting on a dropped hot dog bun, a stray cat. She finally stopped with a stitch in her side beneath an old oak. Even though it was overcast and cold, sweat poured down her temples. She blotted her face on her jacket sleeve. This was all just too lame. Maybe she couldn't remember why she'd wanted to off herself in the first place, but new reasons were rapidly surfacing. Her feet still hurt from wearing the tight shoes, but the sidewalk was freaking cold, so she put her heels back on. Her father would drop by the office in half an hour to pick her up, and when he got there, the shrink was bound to rat on her. There'd be more trouble at home. They might even try to send her to that stupid boarding school in Pennsylvania they'd been threatening. Things had been so much more peaceful when she was just quietly arranging her death. Too bad she hadn't succeeded. A maroon city bus loomed at the end of the street, and she realized she was close to the bus stop. On a whim, she dug in her purse for change. She had maybe an hour before her father caught up with her. Just enough time to check in down at the temple and see how things were going these days. Someone had been working in the gardens, she noticed as she walked up. Debris had been cleared, the earth readied for new beds of flowers in a few weeks, once it warmed up a bit. She saw a figure in the distance and hurried. Was it Sister Angela? But when she got closer, she saw it was Philip, the IT guy, dressed in the navy shirt and trousers of the order rather than an acolyte's robe. He was perched on a stepladder, patiently cleaning a stained-glass window portraying the downloading of an ecstatic personality. "'What's up?' she said from below. He looked down. 
Sorry? There was no sign of recognition in his gaze. Dude, I know I've been gone, she said, but it hasn't been that long. Found out any more goodies about Sister Angela's past? I think you must have known my body before, he said, climbing back down the ladder. His movements were awkward and he fumbled at the rungs. I haven't been myself very long. His effect was entirely changed. It was like he was shorter, rounder, even younger. He regarded her with zero recognition. Philip had donated, she realized suddenly. A chill swept over her. This was someone else entirely looking out through his hazel eyes. My name is Brother Sean, he said, putting down his Windex bottle and roll of paper towels. He wiped his hands on his pants, then held one out. My parents have moved out of state, and I don't know if I want to live with them anymore, so for now, I've joined the order. She shook his hand with a sense of numbness. Philip was gone. The two of them would never dig through files for confidential information again, or go out for a late snack with the other acolytes. Anger surged through her. She'd known better than to make friends here, but then she'd gone ahead and done it anyway. Spaz brain. I had leukemia, Brother Sean was saying. Since I was six, none of the therapies worked, and believe me, we tried them all. I had chemo, radiation, and then a bone marrow transplant. I would get better, but then it kept coming back. In the end, the doctor said I had two months, maybe less, when my parents finally let me come here. How old are, were you? she asked. Fourteen, he said. This, he waved a hand at his pudgy forty-year-old body. Well, it's going to take some getting used to. It creeps me out seeing this old dude's face staring back from the mirror. I mean, look at me. He didn't take very good care of himself. One leaves, one stays, she thought. That was the order's creed. The impact of its meaning swept over her. Offing yourself was for freaking ever. Somehow she hadn't quite processed that before. Just keep telling yourself each day is a gift, Sister Angela's rumbly voice intoned from behind. You'll soon settle in. Welcome back, Charlesy. I can't stay, Charlesy said, turning. My dad is bound to catch up with me. I just slipped away to see how things were here. Proceeding normally, Sister Angela said. Her heavy boxer arm draped over Brother Sean's new shoulder. Philip declared himself ready to go last week, and we concurred. After processing, we presented his body, and then the random selection algorithm downloaded Sean. I've been waiting three years, Sean said. Though inside the computer you can't tell it's taking that long, one minute you're puking your guts out, afraid to share airspace with anyone because your immune system's flatlined, and... The next, you're in a new body. He smiled shakily and regarded his spread fingers. The good thing is that even though this one has some serious miles on it, nothing hurts anymore. I can go rollerblading again or maybe even try snowboarding and surfing. 
God knew when the time was right for you to take up new flesh, Sister Angela said. He picks better than we ever could for ourselves. A familiar gray van screeched up in the parking lot. Doors slammed, voices shouted in the distance. Charlesy glanced over her shoulder. It looked like both her dad and the shrink were hot-footing it through the church parking lot. Absolutely great. Charlesy, get away from those lunatics, her dad yelled, waving his arms frantically. Guess I have to go, she told Sister Angela. She glanced at Brother Sean's shy smile, trying to plaster itself on Philip's older face with mixed results. I was really never going to do it, though. I see that now. That was pretty much understood, Sister Angela said. Most people your age don't really want to lay down their body when they come to us. They're just confused and unhappy. They need a chance to think, a kind of cooling-off period. I'd still like to volunteer, though, she said. Footsteps were pounding closer. The work is hard, Sister Angela said. She rasped her fingers over her five o'clock shadow thoughtfully. Everyone who comes to us is in pain, either physical or mental. The people with whom we work closest often choose to leave this world, and it's always difficult to see them go. Philip was very dear. In fact, he delayed his departure several days because he insisted on completing the scheduled maintenance on all our servers before he left us. I will miss him. I'll sue you within an inch of your sorry lives, her father was yelling. Dr. Fusselman, the shrink, lurched along in his wake, breathing hard, evidently not in nearly as good physical condition, which wasn't saying much. Her dad had never been one for working out. Brother Sean glanced at the approaching men, his brows raised. What? Don't ask, dude, Charlesy said. She rolled her eyes. Believe me, you don't want to know. Her father rounded the last empty flower bed. You can't, you can't. He wrenched at his tie, then leaned over and braced his hands on his thighs, fighting for breath. Need to hit the gym once in a while, Dad, she said. I told you to stay away from this place, he said in explosive spurts, his face red. I'm not doing anything wrong, she said. I just came to see my friends. Tottering up on spaghetti legs, Dr. Fusselman propped himself against the stone wall of the temple. His head drooped back, his eyes closed. His suit jacket hung open, and she could see his heaving paunch. These people are not your friends, he said, looking like he might barf. She moved prudently out of range. He shook his head. They just want to take advantage of you. At least they don't freaking charge money while they're doing it, she said. You know, if I have to look at those stupid fish one more time, I will off myself. Charlesy, her father seized her arm. She jerked away. I got over it, you know, wanting to bite the big one. It was just one bad day weeks ago, but you keep throwing it in my face. She glared at her dad and the shrink. No. You've got me thinking again that leaving might not be such a bad idea after all. This is your fault. Her father turned upon Brother Sean. The new brother backed away, knocking over the Windex bottle. The roll of paper towels unwound down the sidewalk. 
Stop it. You're scaring him, Charlesy said. He hasn't done anything wrong. This whole thing is a sick, sick scam, her father said. I'm going to see that these perverts are put out of business. Hello, this is a church, Charlesy said. You can't just make religion go away because you don't like it. Sister Angela cocked her head, studying his florid face. Many lay people do not agree with what we offer, but I sense this is something more, she said softly. You told us that Charlesy was underage, so you know we can't accept her. Why does what we do here still frighten you so much? Dad grabbed for Charlesy's arm again, but she backed out of reach. Answer the question, Dad, she said. He stared at her, wordless. There was something in his eyes, something terrified. She suddenly remembered how easily he'd found her in the locker room, even though it was in the back of the temple. He'd gone straight to it. No one had shown him the way. You've been here before, Charlesy said. I... His overheated face paled. Dr. Fusselman turned to look at her dad. Charles, he said. It had to have been before my time, and I've been here eleven years, Sister Angela said. I don't recognize you. I do... Father Andrew's chirping old lady voice said, "'You can't have her!' her father cried, then seized Charlesy and pulled her to his chest. He was holding her too tight, and she could feel his heart beating wildly beneath her cheek. "'Charlesy wasn't eligible,' Father Andrew said. "'You, better than anyone, should know that. We take only those of sound mind and legal age who are determined to leave this world.' And even for those, we provide time to change their minds. Charlesy turned in his arms and looked up at his panicked face, trying to put the pieces together. Dad, did you try to donate when you were my age? Actually, he's an upload, Father Andrew said. One of our earliest and a great success, too. Our failure rate was much higher then. We were much encouraged by his, or should I say her, case. The old lady face smiled gently. We haven't heard from you since the day you walked out of the temple, Charlene. Have you had a good life? You don't understand, her father said. When people know, everyone looks at you like you're a freak, like you cheated somehow and have no right to be walking around. He gazed over Charlesy's shoulder at the temple. They say you're not real, just a copy of someone who died. Even my own parents couldn't deal with it. They buried my old body and refused to see me. I had to leave home at 19, start all over again, become someone totally new. He shuddered. The thought of seeing another person walking around in Charlesy's body. Light began to creep in around the tattered edges of Charlesy's brain. Charlene, so her old dad was sugar and spice on the inside, pink instead of blue. That stupid grab bag effect again. These people really should do something about that random assignment thing. Does mom know? She asked. No. His, her, voice was a strangled whisper. I was afraid. 
Even if you just worked here, you would come across my name in the records, that you'd learn what I was. She thought of Philip, cheerfully hacking into restricted files. The parental unit had a point. Sooner or later, she'd have probably found out. Charles, it's obvious you still have a number of unresolved issues, Dr. Fusselman said. He brushed at his disordered hair, then pulled out a PDA and activated it. No wonder Charlesy was at risk. I think this calls for family therapy sessions maybe three times a week. Oh, get real, Charlesy said, freeing herself. Nobody wants you here. Whatever's wrong, we'll fix it ourselves. Go back to your freaking office and feed those lame fish. But... The shrink's mouth gaped in a credible imitation of a dying flounder. If we're dealing with gender reassignment on top of everything else, we should definitely get to the bottom of this. Her father flushed. I don't want to be a this anymore. His hands were fists. Just send me a final bill. Fusselman buttoned his pinstriped suit jacket, though he missed a button, and got it crooked, then set out for the parking lot. Charlesy watched him go with a sense of relief. Brother Sean, Sister Angela said, I think the windows on the south side of the church need your attention. Oh, yeah, like, sure thing, sister. He collected the Windex and paper towels and headed around the side of the temple. Charlesy shivered as the spring wind gusted. Come inside, both of you, Father Andrews said. It's cold out here. For a second, Charlesy thought her father would bolt. His eyes were fearful, his expression haggard, like he'd stayed up night after night worrying about just this. No matter what anyone said, you didn't do anything wrong, Sister Angela said. The person who donated your body no longer wanted to live. It was a sacred gift. Her dad hunched his head, as though expecting a blow, then darted into the shadowy church. Inside, light flooded down through the stained-glass windows so that red, green, blue, and gold danced like living jewels on the flagstone floor. They're not even... My kids, he said brokenly, sinking into the nearest gleaming pew. Eric, Tom, and Charlesy, they came from this body. I have no right to them. They belong to him, whoever he was. Then that's how you've honored your donor. Sister Angela's rugged form knelt before her dad, staring up into his stressed-out face. Father Andrew nodded. "'One leaves, one stays,' he said in his high, quavery voice. "'He didn't have the strength to face the future. "'But you did, Charlene. "'You created a family and brought three children into the world. "'That's a marvelous legacy.' "'Geez!' Do you think you can get out of being my dad that easily? Charlesy said. Like, I know I can be a pain, but... I was afraid some part of you knew all along, he said. I thought what I did all those years ago led you to the temple, that maybe you even inherited the desire to commit suicide from this body. It was all my fault. You decided to live, she said, when you could have given up and died. She thought back on her reasons for coming here. They seemed vague and unimportant now, like thoughts some other person had been thinking, and a very silly one at that. 
This is a good place. They do good things for people. Only 2% of those who initially approached the Church of Second Life ever donate their bodies, Sister Angela said. That's a much lower percentage of deaths for our contacts than suicide prevention hotlines report, and those who are determined to go help someone in desperate need by their passing. It's the ultimate in recycling, Charles E. said. How can that be bad? Reduce, reuse, and all that. You saved a perfectly good body from going to waste. Father Andrew patted her dad on the shoulder. Charlene, I think it would do you some good to volunteer in the Donation Guild, he said. If you experience the work we do, perhaps then you could make peace with yourself. Call me Charles, please, her dad said. Things are complicated enough. I haven't been Charlene for years. You know, Charlesy said, like we could be a father and daughter team working here together. She glanced up at Sister Angela and Father Andrew. And I still want to learn how to download personalities. Sister Angela promised. Father Andrew looked her dad in the eyes. Charles? Dad sighed, staring down at his clenched hands. And for a stomach-wrenching moment, she thought he was going to refuse. Things would go back to the way they'd been, boring and stupid and pointless. She'd been clueless to think it could be any different. Old dogs couldn't learn new tricks, even ones walking around in someone else's discarded body. Everyone, it seemed, but her knew that. All right, her dad said, as though he had to force the words out. I'll give it a try. Awesome, Charlesy said, and threw her arms around his, her neck. In her mind, she was already planning the weeks to come. They would sweep the flagstones together, polish the pews, wash windows, enter data, and download applicants into the computers to give them another chance at life. Maybe she could even learn to upload personalities into newly donated bodies. That would be creepy and fascinating, all at the same time. And now that she really understood where her father was coming from, she might even be able to persuade Dad Charlene to go to the mall with her. They could bond big time while picking out earrings and cosmetics. What did it matter if no one at school would speak to her? She and her dad would be homegirls forever. That would totally rock. Just from Starship Silver Audience, just, you know, our heartfelt condolences go out to Katie's family, Kathy's family and friends. I hope this is a little fitting tribute, you know, it's our little way of saying, you know, we miss this writer, Kathy. Next up is our very own Amy H. Sturgis Ames. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. It is time for another look back into genre history. You may recall that some time ago, back on Aural Delight's show number 171, that's way back in January 2011, I focused on some of the greatest Native American authors of science fiction. At the time, I believe I commented that these authors had been given short shrift in appreciation for their contribution not only to Native American literature, but of course to genre literature as well. I am very happy to say that a year later, we have a new collection that really speaks to 
what had been that oversight and steps into the breach and fills that void. It is, I think, an admirable step in the right direction. I'm talking about the new publication, Walking the Clouds, an anthology of indigenous science fiction edited by Grace L. Dillon. That just came out with the University of Arizona Press, and it also serves as Volume 69 in Sun Tracks, an American Indian literary series. It is the first-ever anthology of indigenous science fiction. As Dr. Mark Bould, founding co-editor of Science Fiction Film and Television Journal, says, it is, quote, a history and shows the state of the art of science fiction from the other side, from the indigenous and the colonized, the dispossessed and the genocided. It shows that it is long past time for the genre to uncircle the wagons and attend to those who have already survived the apocalypse. Charles DeLint, the noted fantasy writer, goes on to say, Though I'm not usually a fan of anthologies compiled by race, sex, etc., this book is so good that I'm happy to have these stories collected together, however it came about. Don't read this because they're stories by Native American writers. Read them because they're damn good stories by damn good writers. Who are these damn good writers, you may ask? Well, I'm very pleased to say that a number of the authors who contributed to this volume are, in fact, the authors that I highlighted in my earlier segment, including Gerald Visner, Sherman Alexie, and William Sanders. It also includes works by others, including Salu Amberstone, who is mixed Cherokee and Scots-Irish, the Acoma Pueblo author Simon Ortiz, and Leslie Marmon Silco, whose background includes white, Mexican, Cherokee, and Laguna Pueblo ancestry. Also included are authors from down under, including Robert Sullivan, the Maori poet, and Archie Weller, the Aboriginal author from Australia. A few names will be a bit more familiar to science fiction fans including Nalo Hopkinson. It's always good to see a work by her included in an anthology. Born in Jamaica, her ancestry includes Taino Arawak lineage. The book is divided into five separate parts. The first, Native Slipstream, refers to, well, science fiction slipstream stories, which collapse past, present, and future suggesting the time kind of flows together like like tributaries into a river. And thus the stories in this section represent nonlinear thinking about space-time. A standout here is a selection, an excerpt, and I should mention that a number of these works aren't short stories, they're actually excerpts from novels, is the selection from Sherman Alexie's Flight. If I may be excused for going off on a tangent here, while my favorite work by Alexi is The Absolutely True Diary of a Part-Time Indian, which I can't recommend enough, Flight is still a really interesting book, and I've used it to very good effect in my university courses. It tells the story of Zitz, a teenaged Irish Native American half-breed and veteran of countless foster homes, poised to open fire on a bank full of innocents, 
but he doesn't become a statistic. He doesn't become a criminal. Instead, he's transported into different times and bodies from a U.S. FBI officer during the Red Power Movement in the Civil Rights Era to a Native American boy at the Battle of Little Bighorn to a U.S. cavalry guide during the so-called Indian Wars to a pilot post-9-11. His experiences give him new insights into violence and revenge and the human condition, really responding to that question at the heart of science fiction, what does it mean to be human? And his experience in the so-called slipstream prepare him for his own chance at redemption. It's a kind of morality tale that will haunt you a long time after you've read it. The second section is about contact, and this is of particular interest to me. Um, a lot of the traditional first contact narratives in science fiction pretty much cast indigenous life, aboriginal life, as the alien, as the other. And in a sense, first contact or discovery becomes a story of conquest. And it's interesting to see this familiar concept really inverted coming from a Native American or Aboriginal perspective. I can think of non-Native authors who have tried to really interrogate this, to, to shine a light clearly on this, and I can think of Ray Bradbury in The Martian Chronicles or Mary Doria Russell in The Sparrow. This section really takes it a step farther. In this section, Simon Ortiz's techno-surrealist story, Men on the Moon, which deals with the television footage of the first lunar landing, is of particular interest. The third section is called Indigenous Science and Sustainability, and it places next to Western notions of science, indigenous or aboriginal notions of science. It pretty much depends on what angle you come from, whether you call this something like indigenous scientific literacies or aboriginal resource management or traditional ecological knowledge or something else altogether. Perhaps the most noteworthy work here is a selection from Andrea Hairston's Mindscape, in which native knowledge, and here I'm going to borrow the words of editor Grace L. Dillon, reflects the emerging study of organic electronics, organic physics, and ethnopharmacology. Yeah, see why I didn't want to put that into my own words? Anyway, it's very interesting stuff. The next section is called Native Apocalypse, and it deals with exactly what it sounds like, apocalyptic and post-apocalyptic realities from a Native perspective. And one could argue that this is a subject with which Indigenous authors already are familiar, thanks to history. I've already admitted the great soft spot I have for William Sanders' fiction, which I think is outstanding. Here we have When This World is All on Fire, which is a very solid story. I'm going to admit I think it would have been a more interesting choice to have his story Elvis Bearpaw's Luck here, but that's a minor quibble. There are also several other really good works here. This is a strong section. 
The last section is taken from an Anishinaabe word that means returning to ourselves. And it's a section that's dedicated to dealing with the fallout of colonization and, and kind of shrugging off the emotional baggage and reclaiming something that is uniquely native. The standout here for me was a selection from Stephen Graham Jones's The Bird is Gone, which is set in a future time period in which uh, the U.S. Dakotas are once again so-called Indian Territory, and this restoration leads to a, quote, skin parade that is a return of Native peoples to this land. I haven't read The Bird is Gone as a whole, but I'm going to have to after reading this selection. This excerpt revisits the iconic characters of the Lone Ranger and Tonto, who have been around since 1933 in radio dramas. For those of you who don't know, this story posits the Lone Ranger and Tonto as a crime-fighting duo in the old American West. The best-known actors in the roles include Clayton Moore as the Lone Ranger and Jay Silverheels as Tonto. They portrayed these roles in the 1940s and 1950s in television and film. Most recently, the saga has gained new life as a forthcoming 2013 film in production, which includes Johnny Depp, cast not as the Lone Ranger, but as Tonto. Okay, back to the collection. In Stephen Graham Jones's selection, the author suggests the idea that, in fact, Tonto was the puppet master, if you will, behind the team, and the Lone Ranger was an android, an automaton, that Tonto directed. This excerpt has a post-cyberpunk, steampunk feel, and it's definitely made me interested in reading the entire work. As a whole, I wanted to give this collection a shout-out because I had devoted an entire Looking Back on Genre History segment to this sort of fiction, and I was so pleased to see a collection appear that spoke directly to the subject and showed how indigenous authors have imagined the future. This ranks up there for me with the Apex Book of World Science Fiction 1 and 2, both of which were edited by Lave Tadar, as a work that helps broaden our understanding of who has been contributing to the genre and open the way for more voices to be a recognized and celebrated and explored part of the dialogue that is science fiction. And so I hope that you will forgive me for being relatively presentist in my subject today, but I do look forward to going even farther back when we return again to genre history in the future. Thanks so much for your time and attention. Bye. Amy, I thank you. Me and Emma, we were trying to, you know, bubble and boil and get something else going for one of those lecture workshops as well. So we're trying to knock our heads together. Listen out for little things coming with that.
So that is Starship Sofa's 241. I do hope you've enjoyed it. Lots and lots of things going on in the background. Yes, we are slowly building up, you know, like world domination there for Crime City Central, launched with that, and Protect Project Pulp. We have the tunes for that, and I'll try, if I remember, I will play the intros to those two new shows that's starting and we're getting the logos done as well. So, you know, things are kind of clicking over there. We're having little practice runs and everything like that. So please listen out for anything to do with that as well. Don't forget, if you want to donate, please, that would be very helpful. <laughs> the wife's going mad. <laughs> Until next week, I'd just like to say good night from me. survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, two, one.